When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Our first sponsor today is Navy Hair Care. I have been working with Navy Hair Care since they launched back in 2018. At that time, I was about a year postpartum with our third child, and my hair was experiencing some trouble after some significant postpartum hair loss. Navy really helped to strengthen my hair, and I noticed a big difference about one to two months after using it regularly. With biotin, vitamins, and rosemary oil, this shampoo and conditioner combo has been part of my daily routine for years now. I also use the charcoal mask every one to two weeks to help revitalize my hair. It helps to dry out toxins, heavy metals, and impurities, which we have plenty of since we have well water. This mask will leave your hair feeling incredibly soft and lightweight. You can use the code Lindsay, L-Y-N-Z-Y, for 30% off your order, and I will leave the links to the products I mentioned within the show notes. Hello, everyone. Today, I will be chatting with Melissa Minnie. Melissa is a speech-language pathologist, mom of three, and the founder of Raising Little Talkers. She teaches parents of babies and toddlers how to get their child to talk during their everyday interactions at home. She is obsessed with educating parents, not only to catch their child up, but to prevent delays before they start. You can check out the show notes for links to a free milestone checklist, free workshop, and a self-paced online course that Melissa created. In today's episode, we will talk about foundational language skills that you can look out for if your toddler isn't using words yet, how parents can make a difference at home, stuttering during childhood, and much more. Let's dive in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode, this podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hello, everyone. Today, we have Melissa Minnie. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. Today, we are going to be talking about speech and language development in children, which we touched on briefly last year, where we went into pretty significant detail, Joanne and I, about what you should expect at different phases throughout childhood as far as articulation and language development and how many words they should be able to say and all of that. So I would refer to that episode if you want to be caught up with all of that information. But today, Melissa and I will go into more detailed questions, and I'd love to hear more about what she specifically does with her own kids at home as far as developing their own language and speech and everything. So if you want to just start off with 
just like the basic foundational language skills that you look for when a toddler isn't using any words yet. Yeah, absolutely. So there are foundational skills that develop before toddlers going to start using words. So if they're not using words, I want to make sure all those pieces are in place. So I'm going to look at, are they babbling? If they're not babbling, are they noisy? Are they just squawking? Are they yelling? Are they... How are they using their voice to communicate even if they're not able to speak yet? For example, my daughter's 10 months right now and she's purposefully vocalizing to get our attention. She wants us to look at her. And then when we look, she smiles. So she knows like, okay, I'm going to make a noise and then the grownups in my life are going to turn to me. So that's a foundational skill. I'm going to look for gestures. Are they using their body to communicate different things? Some meaningful gestures that we see early on are like reaching to be picked up, clapping, waving, even showing you something. So those are like two of the very big ones. And then the third really big one I look for is imitation. Even if a child isn't ready to imitate words yet, are they imitating actions that I do when I bang on the tray or the table? Are they going to copy that? When I clap, are they going to clap? So those are three really big foundational building blocks, I like to call them, that really need to be strong before we can expect a child to imitate the words we say, to have the ability to produce sounds to make words. I'm sorry, there's one more that I'm forgetting that's super important, which is understanding words. (laughs) Before a child can say a word, they need to understand its meaning. So for example, like your child is not going to communicate to you that they want milk if they don't know what milk is. So I want to know like when I say, oh, look, daddy's home. Are they turning and looking around for daddy? Or if I say, it's time for bath, are they crawling toward the bathroom? Because they know that that's what comes next. So excuse me, I misspoke. There are four really big, important ones. Perfect. And I'm actually going to pair this question I received from my community right in here because it goes along perfectly. So there was someone who was concerned because she didn't notice any babbling coming from her nine-month-old. Is this normal? Does she need to be worried? How can she kind of encourage her baby to start babbling? Yeah. So I typically tell parents that if you're not hearing babbling by 10 months, then I would get a hearing assessment. Now, this doesn't mean that your child is deaf because, you know, parents will say, well, they respond to noises and things like that. It just means that there could be something going on that's making it difficult for them to really clearly hear the individual speech sounds that you are modeling for them and they're not picking it up. So they could be something like there's fluid in the ear which could happen even if there's no outward signs of an ear infection. So it's just good to get that looked at. And this is even if they've passed their newborn hearing screening, because I have a lot of parents say, well, they passed that. So that doesn't matter because the fluid can happen at any time. So it's just good to rule that out as a possibility. So I wouldn't be worried necessarily. But what you can do at home is encourage babbling by babbling to your child, which a lot of parents kind of think is funny or weird. But you can start modeling some of these earlier strings of sounds for your child and then add a true word on the end of it. So what I like to do with my kids is mama, 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 when my daughter's looking at me, she is not babbling with the mm sound yet at all. So I am like, 
all up in her face with my lips like mm, when she's eating food. Mama, mama, mama. And you can do that with any word. Like if you're playing in the bath with a ducky, you could say duck, da, 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 duck, and model that so they can hear that repetitive sounds. Typically, the repetitive babbling of the same sound over and over again is called reduplicated babbling. That is the first type of babbling to come and is typically easier for babies than, you know, adding different sounds together. So modeling that, getting face to face, letting them look at your mouth, even putting their hand on your mouth as you're making babbling sounds, anything to sort of draw their attention there. You can also do it in front of a mirror so they can look at you through the mirror, look at their own face through the mirror. Those would be my biggest recommendations. What are like the most common issues that you see arise like throughout early childhood as far as like speech development and like articulation? What are like the the most difficult sounds that you'll commonly see? Yeah. So, well, I think that parents often don't understand that certain sounds don't come until later. So they might be worried that their child is not saying the R sound or the S sound, especially if it's in their child's name. And they want to know, you know, when does that come? So I think just having realistic expectations, R is the most difficult sound. Typically, some kids will just get it right off the bat and it's no issue. But if your child doesn't and they're using a W sound, which is a really common substitution, like that's totally fine until like age five plus. It's really a later developing sound and totally normal if they're not saying it correctly. Another really difficult sound for kids to pronounce that I get questions about all the time are S blends. So like SP together for spoon, SW, swim. Yes, SN for snack. So like kids will typically... Knack, knack, knack. Yes. (laughs) So they might just drop off one of the sounds. They might substitute just a completely different sound instead, like an F, for example, like FIM for swim. That's typical too. And that also is, you know, five plus. So that can be a while before those sounds come in. And I just like to remind parents that speech is a fine motor skill. Just like any other fine motor skill, it's going to take time for that to develop. And the speech clarity is not really going to be there like even like I would say up until age like between two and three, you start to get more clarity with speech. Before that, like parents are needing to translate and just kind of need to know like context basically of what their child is talking about. Otherwise, it's really challenging. Right. Yeah. One of the questions I had here from someone in the community was regarding the R, the sound that the R makes. When should I get an eval versus should I just wait and see? So what you're saying is don't worry at all until after age five. Yeah. Yeah. If that's the only issue, then yeah, I would say you don't need to worry until after age five. And typically these kids will get picked up in school if they're in public school for speech therapy to work on that. But the school's often don't work on that until later, until maybe like seven or eight even. So if you are interested in working on it earlier, it can definitely be worked on before then. So newer research has come out that says that most kids have that sound by age five. So if you did want to work on it before then, schools kind of take a while to catch up to research. So you can get do that privately if you want. Now, what is the like normal or average, I should say, age for children to be talking in like string sentences, like just multiple words at once, like asking a question or just, you know, telling us something? Mm -hmm. So I would say around age three. 
So typically, like it's there is a wide range of what's normal or typical. So if a three year old is only stringing three words together, that is considered okay. Um, so they might not have all the pieces to the sentence, but they can convey to you a lot with three, you know, three words like, you know, ouch fell down, right? And po- while pointing to their bike, they're able to express, you know, pretty complete thoughts that way. But also there are three-year-olds who are speaking like adults. So there's really this very big range of what's considered typical. And we look when we look at a child and we're trying to figure out what's going on with them. Can they benefit from support? We're really looking at the big picture and not just isolated skills, you know? So that's something I I always like to remind parents of too. It's not like if your child is not saying as many words as they should be saying for their age, if there's nothing else going on and everything is developing on track, it might not necessarily be concerning. Whereas a child who's not saying as many words, but also is missing these other foundational pieces, then I'd want to get that child support right away. So anyway, that was a little tangent. But to answer your question, I would say three plus. Okay, perfect. All right. So what should we be looking out for in our own kids that might be a sign that we need to seek a speech and language evaluation? And then where do we go from there? Do we typically talk to our pediatrician about it? So uh, there's quite a few things I will go through that I would say these warrant getting support or at least like looking deeper into what's going on doesn't mean you need to freak out or worry and that there's definitely something wrong it just means like let's check this out so no babbling by 12 months definitely hearing checked if no babbling by 10 months which i mentioned before but if hearing is fine then it's still not happening by 12 months then that could indicate a speech or language issue a limited number of speech sounds so less than three consonant sounds by 16 months and less than five consonant sounds by 24 months. So if you're noticing that your child is using like one sound for everything, or they have like this favorite sound that they're using, and you're not seeing that variety, especially by 24 months, that's something to look into. We really want to see back and forth gestures with an adult, like I mentioned before, pointing, showing, waving by 12 months. If that's not happening by 12 months, that's worth looking into. Not responding to their name by 12 months is something to look into as well. Not pointing to objects or showing an interest. Like, let's say kids will point to things to make requests. But what I'm talking about here specifically is just they want to just show you something. They want to share the experience with you. So, for example, a plane flies overhead and your baby points it out to you or they're pointing Anything just to share that experience with you, if you're not seeing that by 14 months, that's something to look into. By 18 months, not following simple and familiar directions, that's something that I would want to know why. Is it that they're not hearing? Is it that they're not understanding the language? Less than 10 words at 18 months, stuck at a single syllable level. This is a, a big one too. So for example, they're saying ma instead of mama or wa instead of wawa. Because babies do that reduplicated babbling, that's really something that should develop very early on. And if it's not, it could indicate that there's a speech issue. But again, in isolation, this doesn't necessarily mean you need to worry. It's just something to look into. So like meeting with a professional and talking about the big picture so we can see how this all fits together. If your child's trying to imitate you and they're consistently not sounding anything like the model, 
that's something that we want to look into as well. Although there are certain sounds that they're not going to be getting, there are some early developing sounds that we would expect them to be able to mimic early on. The Some of the earliest sounds are M, M, B, and P. Those are some of the earliest sounds that we see because they only involve the lips. They're very easy for babies to see when you make them, and they're typically the easiest sounds to make. Less than 50 words at 24 months would be another Another one that I would want to look into, no two-word meaningful phrases by 24 months. Those are two really big milestones that happen at age two that if they're missing could indicate that there is a language issue that needs support. I don't know if anyone's asked about gibberish, but this is a common one that I get asked about. It's called jargon, and it's a totally typical part of babbling. But when it becomes atypical is when it's still the majority of how a child communicates after the age of two. So if they're really trying to speak like an adult and it's just you don't hear any true words in there, it's unclear, and that's the majority of how they communicate, then there might be something going on. It's typically parents often think that this is a speech issue, actually, that they're trying to say words, but they're not saying them clearly. But more often than not, it's actually a language issue. They just don't have the words to say yet. So this kind of goes hand in hand with that one. If you, the parent, are having a hard time understanding your own child at two years old, most of the time, you should be able to understand the majority of what they're saying at that age, whether they're using jargon or gibberish or not. And then an unfamiliar listener, like a stranger, typically can understand your child most of the time at 36 months. So if a stranger is having a difficult time understanding what your three-year-old is saying, that is that could be another reason. And then last but not least, I would say, how's your child's frustration level during all of this? If your child is having a hard time communicating, are they feeling increasingly frustrated as they get older and other kids are not understanding what they want? You're not understanding what they want. Having a high frustration level is a good enough reason, honestly, to get an evaluation and seek support to help your child. And I'm sorry, I have one other big one, which would be a loss of any skill, loss of babbling, loss of speech or social skill like eye contact, anything that your child had at one point and then you're noticing that they're losing skills. I mean, this is just goes for any area of development. Whenever you notice a regression of any kind, it's always a good idea to talk to your pediatrician. And then where can you get the support if you're looking to like see the big picture and have a little handholding and know what's going on? It's always a good idea to talk to your pediatrician just especially so that they're just in the loop. Even if you decide to go get a speech and language evaluation, your pediatrician is part of the team and you want to include them. However, you don't need a pediatrician referral to get a speech and language evaluation, especially if you're in the United States. We have an early intervention program here. Every state has its own where you can refer your own child and it's free or nearly free And so you can just Google early intervention in the name of your state and that information will pop up for you. Oh, perfect. And they typically have, you know, like locations where you can go that are relatively, do they usually space them out throughout the state or? Yeah, they usually come to your home. Yeah. So they have them in every city. Yeah. If they don't have them in your city, then they would just do it virtually. But, you know, for under three-year-olds, there's a lot of asking of parents what they're experiencing at home, because even during an evaluation, it's just a snapshot in time and your child may not be, yeah, they might not be showing how they typically communicate during that time. So we rely heavily on parents as well. 
Right. I feel like until they've established like a trust with whoever they're working with, sometimes they're, they probably won't talk very much at all. Right. Like, yeah, that can happen. Depends. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is a great place to get some of our grocery and household essentials. The convenience of getting it all quickly shipped to our doorstep is a huge time saver for us, and I really enjoy some of the brands they carry, like Kodiak, Go Macro, and their own Thrive Market brand. I just placed an order to restock some of our go-to favorites from Thrive. We've recently been loving the Kodiak muffin mix in double chocolate, as well as the blueberry lemon flavor. I also restocked our Go Macro bars and grabbed the Primal Kitchen cilantro lime dressing, which is amazing with our fish bowls, one degree cereal, Heavenly Hunks, and Kodiak Flapjack Cups, which are a great, quick, protein-packed breakfast for the kids. As a Thrive Market member, you can save money on every single order. On average, you save over 30% each time. I saved $32 on my last order. On top of the massive savings on each order, Thrive Market has a deals page that changes daily. It gives you cash back on so many brands, and they have a price match guarantee. Thrive Market has over 70 filters on their website and app. You can filter between gluten-free snacks or non-toxic cleaning essentials with the click of a button. When you join Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need for their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. Join Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash Lindsay, that's L-Y-N-Z-Y, for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash Lindsay. This podcast is brought to you by Earth Breeze. Now is the time to do away with those big and bulky laundry detergent jugs. They're heavy and convenient and 91% of them end up in landfills and oceans, which can harm our planet and our oceans. One of the best things we did recently was to switch over to Earth Breeze laundry detergent sheets. And I am excited to say that they work great, even on tough stains. When you have four kids, those clothes get dirty fast and we need a laundry detergent that really cleans. They arrive at your doorstep in a small box that looks like a box of dryer sheets. Each sheet is a liquidless laundry detergent that dissolves 100% in any wash cycle. Just toss that sheet in with your laundry and you're good to go. No mess with the liquid detergents. My favorite part is that it makes it much easier for our kids to do their own laundry now. They can throw their laundry in with a sheet and voila. I just restocked our laundry sheets and purchased both the scented and unscented. The unscented sheets are great for our daughter's sensitive skin. They are hypoallergenic, and dermatologist tested so you don't need to worry about it affecting anyone's skin when you switch over. Earth Breeze is compatible with high-efficiency washers, gray water systems, and septic safe for those of you with a septic system like us. You can set up a flexible subscription that is easily adjustable and can be paused or canceled at any time. I love that we no longer have to buy those large plastic jugs that take up space in our laundry room, and this makes it much easier for our kids to do their own laundry as well. This is just another way to help our environment, which is so incredibly important right now. Try Earth Breeze risk-free. They will give you a full refund if you are not satisfied with the product. No questions asked. Switch from the old-fashioned goo to something new. Right now, my listeners can subscribe to Earth Breeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash Lindsay, that's L-Y-N-Z-Y, to get started. That's earthbreeze.com slash Lindsay for 40% off. earthbreeze.com slash Lindsay. of a two-part question here. So can parents really make a difference at home? If so, how? And then separately, what do you do with your own kids like on a daily basis or maybe, you know, like just 
on a weekly basis with your kids to help them s- to support their speech and their language development overall? Yeah. So parents definitely can help at home. They actually, I would argue, make the biggest difference because you're with your child day in and day out. And even if you work out of the home and you're not with your child, you know, during working hours, you are with them in the morning, in the evenings. And what you have that's really powerful are routines that you do with your child, either throughout the day if you're home with them or at the beginning and the end of each day and on the weekends. And routines are one of the most powerful ways that we can teach our child how to speak and understand language and to communicate because there's built-in repetition. Routines happen on a regular basis, mostly daily, but even if it's not daily, there's still that that repetition. Your child has the expectation of what is going to happen. And when a child is really familiar with a routine, they can then participate either verbally, non-verbally, however, whatever level of communication they're at. And so I always tell parents to think of like a pie chart. And let's say your child was getting support and they were in speech therapy. Each week, imagine like a tiny sliver of the pie. That's how much time they're spending with a speech therapist and the rest of the pie, they're home with you or a caregiver. And so the speech therapist should really be training parents on how to support their child at home when they're not together because that's where most of the action is happening. And so what I do with my own kids is establish really strong routines with them. I like to consciously, you know, figure out what are, you know, let's talk about, let me give an example. How about like a bedtime routine? Well, because most people already have a bedtime routine. When I think about our bedtime routine, I'm thinking about what are some little things that I can add to it that are going to help my child communicate better? So one of the things that we do at bedtime when I change my daughter's diaper, we have a shelf above and we have a little like stuffed animal up there and we just have this little game that we play. So whenever I change her diaper before bed, we the animal kind of peeks over the edge and then I say one, two, three, down and the animal jumps down and she gets to hold it. So this is just a little part of our bedtime routine and it doesn't seem significant except it really is because now when I pause and I leave off the word down, she's starting to say da (laughs) because she knows that that comes next. So it's having these really strong expectations of what's going to happen next and your child being able to anticipate that. Another one is after we get her jammies on, you know, of course, during the getting jammies on. I'm talking about arm in, arm in, leg in. Okay, your jammies are on. And then we go turn off the light. And that's another one that kids love to do is turning off the light. So I help her little finger do it and we say off, light off, and we turn the light off. So she's going to know if I skip that step, if I forget, you know, kids let you know when you miss something important because they know what's going to happen next, right? So the idea is later, You can kind of engineer these scenarios where your child is going to have to communicate to you that something's not right or something's silly or something's going on so that they can say the word that maybe they've never had to say because you say it uh, and you can give them that chance to do so. So this is something that I teach in my course actually to parents is like how they can how they can use their routines that they are already doing at home. They shouldn't have to set aside extra time to work on communication or to work on speech and language. It should really be embedded in 
what they're already doing with their child day in and day out. Do you have any, to kind of go along with this, do you have any favorite like nursery rhymes that you like to use to kind of like what I do with our kids is, you know, like say twinkle, twinkle little, and then I'll just wait for her to say star. Well, of course she says like tar because you know, the S, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. are there any like specific songs that you find like are either easier or like kids are more apt to kind of remember and kind of fill in those words that you like to use? You know, I do have several that I like to use and I can share one, but it really depends on your child, to be honest, because like some kids may not like one song and another kid, you know, some kids are not really into Twinkle Twinkle and another kid like loves that song. So I think it really depends. But I also think if you started to do it young, then your child just kind of learns to expect that that's, you know, a song that you guys sing together and it's a moment of connection for you guys. One of my favorite I have like a lap game that actually my mom did with us when we were all kids and I do it with my kids too. I won't sing the whole thing because it's kind of long, but I I actually have it on Instagram so I can share the link with you to share. (laughs) It's really cute. They're on your lap and it's like, we call it the horsey game. So that's like, I will do the sign for horse and I'll say, let's do the horsey game. So I put them on, on the lap and you go, this is the way the horsey walks. And you're like moving your legs up and down. The horsey walks, the horsey walks. This is the way the horsey walks all through the town. And then when you get to the end, it gets faster and faster and faster until the horsey falls down. And my kids love that part because you can, you open your legs and they kind of plop between your legs. And I just wait before because that's like the climax of the song and the most fun part. So eventually they say down and then they get to plop down. So I'll share that link with you. That's cute. Yeah, I share it with me. I love that. Speaking of nursery rhymes, like how come some of them are so morbid? Have you ever thought about that? I <laughs> as do you not were, know, as you were but saying, you're like, right. <laughs> as you are saying, so like when oh, the horse fell down, I was like, what is with some of these, like, like the monkeys on the bed, like love the song, but like, why did they yeah. have to get hurt all the time? I don't like, know. I mean, the actual lyrics are different. I actually changed it to fall down, but the way my mom sings it, like the horse falls in a ditch. And I just felt like, wh- <laughs> I don't know. I felt like down was easier for kids to say, but also I was like, that's just, I don't want to, I don't know. I don't like the yeah, horse know. falling in a ditch. I know. <laughs> Like the Rockabye Babies. I don't know. There's just so many of them. I'm oh, like, that's a what bizarre is one. This bizarre. Like, yeah, really. Bizarre. I don't know why. Why? Why? Why would we ever? I just, why I don't know. Why are they in the tree? I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it's so bizarre. It's so weird. Oh my gosh. Okay, I want to talk to you about magnetiles before I ask you some questions from people in the community. So, I had seen that you talk about tips on how you can use your magnetiles at home to help with speech and language. And I thought this was brilliant because as I mentioned to you before we started, the one toy that all of my kids in all of their age ranges like still love and still play with all the time are the magnetiles. Like they are a wonderful toy. And you, they don't even have to be the magnetile ones. I think there's like Picasso tiles or something that are always on sale that are like you know, significantly less expensive. But anyways, mm-hmm. I like um, play mags too. Yeah. There's like all these different brands out there now and they're the same things overall. So if you can go over those, because I think that is, that was just so awesome. And I want everyone to be able to use that if they have those at home. 
Yeah, for sure. I love magnet tiles. There's just so much that you can do with them, even depending on like what your child's interest is. You can just bring that in and include magnet tiles. But one of our favorite ways to use magnet tiles, obviously, aside from just like building structures and knocking them down, is to make roads and garages for cars. My kids love doing this. You can just line them up and make like a track all around your floor and then take toy cars and drive them around. And some words you can model that are really fun for kids to mimic are beep and boom if they crash or honk honk or even like a backing up sound beep, beep, beep. So my kids love to do that. And then making little garages, like you just take the square shape and basically just make a cube and the front of the cube opens up and we put the cars in, we take them out, we put them night night, we close the door, we open the door and I'm modeling all these words for them. And I always like to remind parents that like some kids need to be taught how to play with certain toys. Like I didn't just sit my kid down with some magnet tiles and be like, bye. Like I showed them like you have to put two corners together for it to stand up. And so once they understood how to play with them, now they play with them independently. But when you're working on language and you're trying to get your child to talk, it's you got to be there playing with them. It just doesn't have to be all the time. So that's one of our favorite ways to use them. We also just like to like stick them together and then either just pull them apart and I kind of feign like a like this is really hard they're stuck and pulling them apart and sticking together and then also sliding them apart I don't know if your kids ever get pinched by magnet tiles because sometimes that happens like their little finger gets pinched between two so we always talk about like if that happens slide it apart because they can't get it apart what else do we do we also like to make farms and we'll build like just a little structure for the barn and then use the magnet tiles to make a fence and then put the little animals inside the fence and model those words in, out, run away, come back, go to sleep and wake up is a popular one with the animals as well. The animals can also walk on those tracks that I talked about initially. We also have made slides either like for little characters to slide down as like part of a playground, but we've also made track like more of a hill, I guess, or ramp for cars to go down. And that's been really fun too. We do races and that when you do it with cars, there's so much you can model stop, go fast, slow, my turn, your turn. We, I mean, the, the, language you can model is really endless. And that's what I love so much about it. We love how magnetiles stick to so many different surfaces. So we kind of play this game where we're figuring out where they can stick. Does it stick here? And we work on yes and no. And I really exaggerate the head nod and the shake. If you have a metal garage door, you are very lucky because magnetiles stick to that. And it's so yes, fun. We did. Yeah. It's yep. so great. So fun. just like yeah, just switching up the locale of play can be a game changer. So that's a really fun thing to do. And they also can stick to obviously some fridges and dishwashers. So you can play around and be like, does it stick? Yes or no? We love playing ice cream shop. We will take like three of the large triangles and stick them together in like a cone shape to make the cone and then three of the smaller triangles on top. And we'll pretend to lick each other's ice cream and make the slurping sound. Mm, which is another earlier developing sound and nom, 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 nom as we pretend to eat them or we can make it fall on the floor and be like, "Uh uh-oh, my ice cream fell. Another fun one is using a dry erase marker and drawing 
on the magnetiles. That's kind of just like a novel way to use them. And you can even put like the different parts of the face, eyes, nose, mouth, and put them together flat on the ground or on a baking sheet where they stick to and make faces, which is a really great way to talk about different emotions, happy, sad, eyes open, eyes closed, size big and small. You can ask your child to give them a choice. Do you want a big nose or a small nose? Do you want a happy face or a sad face? And let them pick and then put your faces together. That's a great way to work on body parts. Those are my favorite ways to use them. I also make sure that I model. I know magnetiles obviously fall down relatively easily. I mean, I know the magnets are supposed to make them better than blocks in that sense, but I do find like until kids kind of figure out how to support their structures the right way, they can fall down easily. So I really like to model coping strategies for when my tower falls down and model feelings. I feel frustrated. I'm sad. But you know what? I'm going to try it again. Something my daughter always says, well, it's not going to be the same. And we talk about how, well, it might not be the same, but you're going to build something different. It could even be better. And she usually does end up liking her new structure better. Wow, I built something I never built before. So kind of just drawing attention to that and how the fun part is in the process and not necessarily the mm-hmm. final result. Yeah. And then, you know, when your siblings come over and just kick it or completely destroy it, that's like, well, that's where we're at. <laughs> the worst. I know. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Like, we're having that issue right though? now. I know my 10 month old's mobile. And so she has like her little baby corral that we have. And we've, even my daughter was like, I'm going to build inside her corral. So she like brings the magnetiles in there, closes the door so that no one can knock down her tower. And then the baby's out. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. I was thinking like, yeah, she's building it somewhere the baby can can go. <laughs> the baby's no, 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 she's like, kicking no, her out. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, she's kicking her out. I mean, it's kind of smart on her part, right? She's like, yeah. well, if I just build inside of there, she can't get to it. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So I have a few questions for you that are very particular questions from people in the community. Is there anything that you want to add to the earlier part of our conversation that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to? Honestly, I feel like we covered so much. I'm ready to answer questions. Okay, perfect. All right, let's start with the stuttering question. So can this be common in the younger years? When should I worry? When should I get speech therapy? Yeah. So there actually is developmental stuttering. So the statistic is that five to 10% of children will stutter at some stage in their early development, and it's not concerning. So it can typically start when your child is developing more complex language. So between the ages of two and five years old, and most kids will grow out of it. But there is like a difference between There's some characteristics of stuttering that might be higher risk that are more atypical, and I'll share some of those and then what you would see in more typical developing uh, language. So oftentimes you'll hear repeated phrases. So a child might say, give me, give me that. So they've said, give me, give me twice or a word repetition, but, but, but can I have it? Using like filler words like, uh, um, like... Um, and repeating those as they're trying to get their thoughts out. These can be, you know, typical ways that we hear kids stuttering or how we call it as speech pathologists is disfluency. There's, There's breaks in, you know, how fluid the speech is, right? So this can happen when you're 
child's tired or scared or excited or frustrated. And typically we see this happen like under the age of three and a half. And it doesn't last very long. And there's no family history of stuttering. Where it might be atypical, and I'm not going to say always because I will share an example with my daughter soon, but repeating sounds or syllables is more atypical and indicative of a true stutter. So like, let's say your child's trying to say baby and they're kind of getting stuck on that buh sound. They might say buh, 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 buh baby, right? Or prolonging a sound like the S in the word sleep, they might go sleeping and not be able to get that out. Or even a complete block where there's no airflow or voice for several seconds, but you can tell that they're trying to get a word out. That can be another atypical stutter. Well, not atypical stutter, but atypical of typical development and higher risk for an actual stutter is what I mean. There also could be some secondary behaviors you might notice like eye blinking, throat clearing. This would occur throughout the day regardless of situation. And typically the onset is over three and a half years old. This can also last more than six months. So I will say though, there are situations where a child might stutter when they're having like a big life change. For example, you know, a death in the family, a big move, a new school, anything that like is changing your child's life in a big way can cause a stutter as a way that their body is dealing with it and handling it. And this happened to my daughter when my son was born, actually. She developed a really severe stutter and she was showing having the characteristics of this higher risk stutter. She was showing these secondary behaviors like eye blinking. She was getting stuck on specific sounds. And it was really heartbreaking, honestly, as a parent to see that happen. Even as a speech therapist, I don't treat stuttering. It's very specialized. So, you know, I was calling up my colleagues and being like, do I need to worry about this? But thankfully, they gave me some really good tips that I would like to share because it really helped us. If you notice that your child is stuttering and they're really young, they're not even really like aware that they're doing it, the best thing you can do is not draw attention to it. I think it's really natural for a lot of parents to say, whoa, slow down, you know, try again. But that can actually make it worse and just draw your child's attention to something that they're otherwise not really aware of. And so the best advice I received was pay attention to the content of what they're saying and not how they're saying it. So I just put on a poker face and pretended like it wasn't upsetting me to hear her stuttering. And would just give her the time and space she needed to get her message out. I even told other family members like before we were going to get together, hey, if she gets stuck on on a sound or can't get a word out, like don't say anything about it. And it actually went away. And if she had it for like a month and a half, if your child is noticing and they are getting frustrated and they do have an awareness of it, you can let them know that, you know, take your time. I'm here. I'm listening. And don't encourage them to slow down or you know, try not to interrupt them. Try not to tell them try again or rephrase their speech. That's not really helpful. But what you can do if you want to feel proactive is model slow, clear speech. It feels weird to do, but it actually helps because children have mirror neurons, which, you know, they subconsciously will mimic what they see and hear us doing. So if you're modeling this kind of extra slow, clear speech, they will start to pick up on that and 
the idea is that they will do it too. Yeah. I, I just to add kind of to what you were saying, um, one of our kids, when they're really, really, really tired or like really mad, like someone, I don't know, broke his magnetile tower, right? It'll be like this repetitive, like sound where he's like, because he's like really mad or again, he'll kind of do it when he's tired as well, but otherwise has no issues. So as you mentioned, this can be something that could just be related to, you know, one of those one of those things totally being tired or developmental being yeah. mad or yeah so maybe just paying attention to kind of when it's occurring and yeah it's so interesting um, yeah and i would say if if your child's over the age of three or three and a half and you're worried about it you know you could definitely find a speech pathologist who specializes in stuttering in toddlers or young children and just maybe talk to them on the phone you know have a consultation about it just to get a better idea of like what you should be looking for and how long, like when you should maybe seek out help for it. Because again, it's not my area of expertise. It's very specialized because there is like a psychological component to stuttering. So yeah, it's, it's interesting, but those, that would be my advice. Awesome. All right. So I have, this one's a little bit longer, so stay with me here. Okay. So I have a four-year-old not me, but this person, (laughs) four-year-old working with a speech language pathologist on motor development and sound clarity. The ability is there. He's just not consistent outside of his speech classes. The speech language pathologist says he's working really hard when they're in the session together. How can I help him understand the need to use these learned speech tools more regularly so peers can better understand him? I am concerned with this transition to new friends and teachers when he goes to a new school in the fall. Okay, so I guess my first, she's saying they're working on motor speech. So my first thought is apraxia, which it's basically difficulty coordinating and sequencing like the rapid, accurate movements that we have that are necessary for speech production. So these are kids who know what they want to say, but they're trying to say it and it's not it's not coming out the way that they would like. So they're having difficulty moving. That's why it's called a motor speech because it has to do with movement, moving between sounds, between syllables, between words. And I will say, I think she needs to talk to the child speech therapist about this because I don't know, you know, what is expected of him. But in general, generalizing what you are doing in the speech se- session in a very controlled environment is the most challenging and the longest part of the speech therapy session. And so I would want to know what what does the speech pathologist expect of this child when they're not in the session? Are there certain cues that the speech pathologist is using in the session to remind the child to use their strategies that the mom or dad or any anyone else can use when they're outside of the session? Because, you know, the speech pathologist might say, you know what, our goal right now is, you know, X percent accuracy in sessions, but outside of the speech therapy room, when your child is just having a conversation with someone, they're not ready to start using these strategies. You know, for example, if I'm working on any sound with a child and we're in this controlled environment, we're playing a game, I'm able to cue them or prompt them in the session. And then when they're out, like telling you what they did that weekend, 
they're not thinking about how their speech sounds. They're not thinking about, I need to be speaking a certain way. I mean, it's very automatic when we're just talking to someone, right? If we started thinking about how we're talking, that's requires a lot of focus and it requires you know, you to be able to think of like what strategies you have and which one you should use in that moment. So I think that this child will systematically learn how to use these strategies outside of the session. And I'm going to assume that the speech pathologist has a plan for that. Yeah. Yeah. Because she was saying like he doesn't really, he's just refusing to practice unless he's like bribed to practice certain words. But that in session, I mean, I'd like to think that if in session he's really trying hard and like doing great, like then it's like, well, how important is it to really kind of like make him practice these words outside? You know, I don't know. I mean, the repetition pieces, yeah, the repetition piece is really important, especially if it's a motor, motor planning issue. So, I mean, if, if it's like, you know, a behavioral thing where the child's just like, I'm not going to do it, you know, maybe they need to have some sort of, extrinsic reward system to help, you know, practice that. Or maybe this child will be intrinsically motivated when they're trying to talk to someone and that person's not understanding them, you know, that Mm -hmm. might, and then they feel bad. So it depends. Every child's different and like what's going to be most motivating to them to practice is mm-hmm. I think going to be personal, right like maybe but. as he realizes that people his or kids his age right in the new school are like talking to him and he's like well I want to be able to say this back <laughs> you know that might be the, the motivation that that he might need if that makes sense Okay. We're winding down. I want to ask you these two questions that I ask everybody that I have on. So the first question is, if you could give one piece of advice to moms, what would it be? My one piece of advice to moms can be about anything. Oh, about anything. Well, it still kind of relates to speech and language, but just child development as a whole, cut yourself some slack and it's not your fault because one of the biggest things that parents are in my DMs about and in my emails about is feeling so guilty and like it's their fault that their child is behind. And so my biggest piece of advice is telling yourself, if you even need to fake it till you make it, then look in the mirror and tell yourself that you're doing a good job and that it's not your fault, that you do have the ability to help your child, you know, progress, but that you are not the cause of whatever is going on with them. That would be my biggest piece of advice. Yes, I love that. All right. The second question is, if you can make a meal for your whole family that everyone would eat that's relatively quick and easy, what would it be? Yeah, you're going to laugh, but it would be mac and cheese. I'm not because laugh. like my like kids don't eat mac and cheese. McDonald's. They oh my don't? gosh. I know. I want to strangle them. I'm. It makes me so mad. I'm like... Or they don't even really like pasta. I'm like, this is literally the easiest thing for me to make. And I love pasta. Yeah, why and they don't eat it. Why are you doing this to me? Seriously, <laughs> I've tried so many different kinds of mac and cheese. And I'm like, want them to taste it just so they can maybe find one that they like. But they're just like not pasta people. And it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. Oh, my gosh. I know. So I hope painful. it changes. It's so oh painful. My gosh. <laughs> Wait, so what is the meal that you'll make for them like that they'll eat? They had a lot of other things. I would say like if 
if it's just like a quick meal that I can just throw together, they love like, you know, frozen nuggets. We don't eat meat. So they're like a veggie, like, you know, basically chicken nuggets. They like those. They like oh, quesadillas. That's a good easy one. But like sometimes you just want to throw on a pot of pasta and call it a day. Oh, you listen. And I, mean, I feel like I can't yeah. do that. <laughs> that's so hard. Maybe it'll change. You know, I mean, I feel like, yeah, like who it'll change. It has to change. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so for you, for your own well-being, especially as they get older. It's like so easy. Like if you're doing stuff during the like evening, like sports or whatever and coming home and like, okay, boil pasta. And especially now that they have like the protein pasta, not that I am not a fan of the, the chick bean pasta, like that stuff. It, it's a very weird texture. I, yeah, it's so the texture. I make that for my kids and they're like, nope, no way. But the, <laughs> I think it's Barilla. Barilla protein uh-huh. pasta is phenomenal. It's exactly oh, like regular pasta. I didn't and even know they like, had that. Oh yeah, it's good. Angel hair, regular spaghetti, penne, anything you want. And it's like 10 to 12 grams of protein in a serving. I'm like, this is genius. But it actually is tasty. Like the, I feel like the bonza, it just like falls apart. It's a weird. The consistency mm-hmm. is so strange. But yeah, if you're looking for a good protein pasta and they have it, I mean, pretty much anywhere, so. I will that's look into one. that because my husband does well, not like bonza, but you do have to be yeah. careful not to overcook it because that's when it falls apart. I know. I know. And it's weird. Like it like foams up and I don't know, it's just uh-huh. so strange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Try the Barilla one. It's it's pretty good. Okay. Um, I will. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Melissa, for taking time out of your busy day to chat with us about this really important topic. I really appreciate you. Yeah, absolutely. This was fun. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.